Welcome to another episode of the Behavioral Design Podcast by Habit Weekly. My name is Samuel Salzer and I'm your host. This episode is a conversation between me and David Perot focused on the fascinating world of self-applied behavioral science. This means what we can do with the tools and insights of behavioral science to better our own lives. And David is the perfect person to speak with since he's not only a leading behavioral science practitioner based out of South Africa, with extensive experience of working at the intersection of applied behavioral science and design, but David has also developed Circles in Time, a comprehensive and systematic framework to help individuals apply behavioral science learnings to their personal and professional lives. We had a fantastic conversation discussing, obviously, Circles in Time, but much more, and covering all things self-applied behavioral science. From advice on how to set up working personal system to optimizing goal setting and how to run self-experiments. You'll even get to know which South African business has the best must-see commercials. So this was indeed great fun. I really enjoyed speaking with David. He's one of the most insightful and thoughtful people in the field. And I really hope that you'll find this as enlightening as I did. Welcome, David. Very excited to have you on board here. Thank you, Sam. It's an absolute pleasure and honor to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. And I'm excited to have you on here as we always have great conversations. So it's great to have one where we can actually record and share that as well. So it's going to be fun. Yeah, looking forward to it. Cool. So I'm just going to jump straight in here and pretty much go into your beginnings in the field. Mm. So, you know, it's said that all roads leads to Rome, but I would say that all roads definitely don't lead to behavioral science. And more often, they are more like random trails and small paths rather than paved roads. So I'm just curious, my first question being, how did you get started in applied behavioral science? Yeah, I definitely have one of those paths less traveled. Uh, so I think where I initially get, got into it, if I started the very beginning, was during my studies something personal happened my father had a bit of an incident uh, he actually basically he damaged his frontal lobe had a stroke and how i dealt with that that sort of process was just by trying to understand what had happened to him and so i i kind of went on this big learning journey in order to understand uh, how the brain worked how he was forming decisions. He had sort of damaged the, the left side of his prefrontal cortex, which was responsible for planning and, and language and, and, and judgment and that sort of thing. And so that kind of took me down this rabbit hole that I really, <laughs> I suppose I've never come out of, uh, just to kind of understand how the brain worked, the, the learning process, you know, the way his brain rewired itself in order to you know, get him back to a typical state, which, you know, I'm thankful he has. And while, you know, while I was on that, that sort of path, I, um, I came across people like Daniel Kahneman and, and Daniel Ariely and, and others, and just the thinking around cognitive biases and how we form decisions, you know, fast and slow thinking. And so that's, 
I think that's where I kind of deviated off the the sort of typical path initially and was kind of just thrown off it um, in, in that regard. But what that then led me to was, you know, I went from that into my sort of postgrad studies. And while I was there, I was doing internships and, and that sort of thing at agencies and consultancies. And I developed, you know, through this kind of self-education, this understanding of behavioral economics, which is really the, the branch of this, this thinking that was strong at the time. And I was asking everyone, you know, during those, uh, you know, during those periods uh, about behavioral economics, about this thinking, and everyone sort of saw it as something that was interesting, something that they enjoyed discussing and talking about, but no one was actually applying it in any systematic way to solve problems. And so when I'd finished my, my studies, I set up a company with a few you know, sort of fellow students, and we really just were looking at this one question, which was around how we could take the thinking and the ideas that were sort of emerging out of this new field. This was in kind of 20, 2013, end of 2013, early 2014 and how we could apply that in a more systematic way to solve uh, you know, business and, and policy problems. And so that, that was the kind of bet that we took. And how we got going there was we just, because we didn't have any credibility or experience or expertise at the time, we just went and uh, offered our services to, you know, on a pro bono basis to, to uh, nonprofits, NGOs. And we just said, look, we've mesh together this theory based on what we'd learned from J-PAL and BIT and, and Ideas42 and others. And, uh, you know, it's very theoretical at the time and we just wanted to kind of put it into practice and see how it actually worked. And so we did this with a few different, uh, with a few different clients and fortunately some of those projects took off. One of them, uh, for any sort of UK listeners that you have, was with the big issue, and fortunately, you know, th that turned into a really successful case study and a sort of really good application of that process or that framework. It actually led to us winning a, a Grand Prix at, at Nudge Stock a few years later. But it just showed us that, you know, it proved to us that there was something to this process, to this framework of taking these insights and these ideas and applying them uh, in, you know, in a structured, systematic way to solve problems. But what it also did was it gave us these, uh, you know, these case studies that we could then go to clients, engage with, show them the process, the framework, but also show them how we were applying it, you know, in the real world. And so that really got company going, Gravity Ideas, and yeah, since then have has just kind of become, I suppose, a real part of who I am and uh, what I do. So yeah, I, I hope that's enough context and... Um, yeah, that's amazing. And so I guess what I'm curious about is that it sounds like it started in a very, you know, deep personal level, obviously. And how how is that today, given, you know, at the start of it, obviously it was that kind of made you really curious about wanting to understand this better. Mm. How personal do you feel like being a behavioral scientist is today? Because I'm going to come to that a little bit more later, but I'm just curious to explore this idea of whether we put on the hat to go to work, so to say, in some in some jobs, that's a very different thing. You can kind of go to the office and then check out of the office, and mm. you you might not think too much about work because it doesn't really have much to do with your personal life. And 
and there's no much of a overflow there. Yeah. So how is that for you today? Yeah. No, I mean it. It completely it disrupted me to the core. I mean, just going through that process of having to basically rebuild my entire worldview from scratch. You know, because of that experience, because of yeah, just the you know that sort of the, the incidents and and the way that I had to then take on new models of the world, new ideas, new yeah, new mental models in order to make sense of the things that had happened to me and the things that were uh, that the sort of knock-on effects or consequences that resulted from that meant that behavioral science really got in in at my core. I suppose is, is how it said is it really sort of became the way that I used to sort of make sense of all the decisions, both in my professional life and my personal life, and and that lens just just sort of got reinforced and um, really uh, integrated into everything that I was doing, you know, from that day forward. So it's, yeah, deeply integrated into, into my life. And I'd say that spills over into, into all the, the different personal aspects that, you know, I think about uh, today, you know, into my aspirations, into the way that I engage and with others in relationship and in community and, and family it's yeah it's it's not one of those things that you can just leave at the at the office door on your you know on your way out it's uh it's different and i think that you'll see that with a lot of people in the field is that they are thinking about these sorts of things outside of their professional capacity that it is part of their their personal lives too i i do find it very interesting to explore this idea of how the personal life is affected by behavioral science and being a behavioral scientist and so on in a real way not that kind of phony read people's mm. minds kind of thing. And so to that, I'm just curious to then ask you about self-applied side of behavioral science. So obviously uh, you mentioned, you know, this was very close at heart because of a family member. Uh, and how have you thought about, because obviously a big part of what you do is today also exploring this idea of self-applied behavioral science. And yeah. I'm guessing Part of was also discovering how behavioral science was affecting your own life and how how you could change your own life with behavioral science. How did that kind of happen for you? Yeah, sure. So the self-applied side is something that I've been exploring for a long time in an informal way, in just in a way of me sort of you know running experiments on myself and thinking about designing my environments in order to shape my behavior. But it was it was a more sort of playful thing. But then I think so towards the end of 2019, I stepped back. I'd, at this point, I'd, you know, I'd closed my previous consultancy and I had some time to just step back and think about the field more broadly and look at the landscape of sort of what was going on. Where's the field come from? How has it evolved? What are the opportunities going forward? But then also what are the risks and what are the downsides? And through that piece of analysis, I realized that if we think about growth, there's a lot of growth on this kind of dimension of adoption and there's a lot of potential there just in terms of people adopting the behavioral science toolkits and deploying it in different areas. You know, from the public sector, we've seen a lot of growth, you know, from government level down to local uh, sort of to, to even district levels uh, and also in the private sector and, you know, from uh, product teams through to marketing and growth teams 
through to operational teams. And so we're seeing this sort of this widening, uh, sort of growing adoption of, of that toolkit. But what I realized was that there seems to be a little less growth in the area of innovation. And I was curious to why that was that was happening. And and one of the things I realized there that there's this kind of tension that's occurring as a result of as a result of the fact that the technical developments that need to occur in order for the field to move forward are constrained by a growing concern around the ethical side of things. And so maybe as an example, what I mean by that is you can take an issue like the moving away from a one-size-fits-all nudge approach to one that's more heterogeneous or uh, one that's more that accommodates cultural variability or people, different people's idiosyncrasies. And so you might think about a solution to that as something like personalization, right? Tailoring, creating uh, persuasion profiles for individuals so that we can craft interventions that are particularly uh, influential to them within particular contexts. But as soon as you go down, start moving down that path, what it means is that you require a lot more data. And as a result of that, you bring in a whole another level of ethical considerations that you didn't have before. And so I think for me, that's a nice example of where you have this technical growth path that's then constrained by ethical considerations. And as a result of that tension, you create you know, what I call a local maximum. It, it becomes harder and harder to, to innovate in a space like that because of the tension that's created between those two dimensions. And so in identifying that, what I thought about was, right, what are the other areas that are worth exploring on the behavioral science landscape just in case those kind of constraints create a sort of paralysis that don't allow the field to move forward in a constructive manner there? And one of those areas that I thought was really interesting was the self-applied space, particularly for three reasons. The one reason was that it was as a result of it being a lot more decentralized, meant that there was a flexibility uh, that existed that you don't get with this kind of centralized third-party approach. That meant that you can explore different changes to environments that you couldn't necessarily explore if you were you know, going from a government perspective uh, you know, to take the other end of the spectrum. The second area was around moving from sort of static to dynamic behavior. So one sort of behavior change to ongoing recurring behaviors that we want to turn into routines or or rituals or habits. And then the third area was around second and third order effects. So not just thinking about the behavior change itself, but what are the second order consequences to that or the externalities. And all those things seemed um, much more interesting and or even achievable and practical to, to sort of study and understand when you were looking at them through an individual lens as opposed to uh, you know, through a third-party lens. And so the, the question I asked myself was, can you take the toolkit that we've been using and crafting you know, over the last decade or so uh, with governments and with companies and build that into a structure, into a framework, into a set of tools that you can provide to citizens or individuals so that they can shape their own choice environments? and set up feedback systems so that they can learn and grow and understand what works for them 
in order to improve themselves, uh, resolve their self-control challenges and, and, uh, and achieve their goals. And so really that's, that's the self-applied area that I'm, I'm really interested in. And I suppose that's a bit of context around how I got to that point. Yeah, that's great. And it's very much music to my ears. It's really fun to, to hear how you laid it out. And, and obviously that leads very naturally into what I'm really excited to talk about, actually, which is your programming platform, Circles in Time. So could you maybe briefly introduce Circles in Time and kind of explain what it's about? Yeah, so Circles in Time is, is the initiative that I've set up to kind of answer this question around, you know, if we did take the self, self-applied behavioral science seriously, what could that look like practically? And so the, the real purpose there is to create an initiative that takes the frameworks, tools, and also communities and puts that into a structure that allows people to solve these recurring self-control challenges, right? So at the moment, how it's, you know, sort of concretely how it's structured is it's, it's an online program that people move through where they learn about their own sort of biases, they set up their own goals, they think about their own psychology, and then they take the toolkits that you know, we've built up over the past few years from applied behavioral science and think about what sorts of interventions might be helpful in order to change their own behavior. And then they run an, an experiment in themselves to see if that's working, iterate, you know, adapt, and at the end make a decision as to whether that's something they want to integrate into their life more permanently or something they want to adjust, change, or drop. And then the second component to that is a community that have been set up just to share learnings and practices and create accountability between individuals who now have this toolkit, understand how to use the tools and want to do it on a more sort of regular basis. So practically that's the initiative. And yeah, it's, it's still very much in its infancy. You know, it's been running for eight months now and I've, I've run the, the program three times going into the the, the fourth iteration in um, in just a week's time. But yeah, so far so good. It's been an exciting initiative. I've learned a lot. And, um, you know, the participants have come out really happy with, uh, with what they've learned and how it's changed their lives. So yeah, I'd say so far I'm quietly confident that there's, you know, there's there's room to grow down that path. Yeah, and so full disclosure, I was, I guess, part of one of the first cohorts in this program as well. And I was very much pleasantly surprised in terms of didn't know really what to expect. It's a little bit of a, of a challenge, to be honest, to, to create something like this. And I think for me as a practitioner, when I created the Habit Canvas, this was kind of the idea behind it in some ways. But I would be honest and say that Habit Canvas is like the, I don't know, like a, a super, 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 super basic version of what you have created. So I'm really thankful for, for that you have put this together. It's, it's amazing. I, I really enjoyed going through it. And I guess what I'm really excited about now is just nerding out on some of the aspects that you cover in the program a little bit. So, mm-hmm. so one thing that I think is interesting is that the first thing people usually think about when it comes to personal behavior change is goal setting. So I think we can come to goal setting soon, but it seems to me that one of the core ideas in certain time is use this idea of the importance of thinking in systems. So before we get to goal setting and so on, I guess I would just love for you to briefly talk a little bit about what it means to you to have a personal system. Mm. 
and why perhaps systems are crucial for supporting us through a behavior change journey? Yeah, it's a great question. And um, I think maybe just to to define what I mean by a personal system, and then we can nerd out a bit about that. Uh, so so when I when I mention personal system, what I what I mean there is a structured set of activities, cognitive strategies, and environmental features that are organized into a sort of recurring loop that you move through in order to solve some sort of self-control challenge, right? So it's, it's not just the activity or it's not just the nudge or the intervention or the, you know, maybe some sort of mental shift that you put in place, but really how the combination of those three components are organized in a structured manner so that, you know, that you can solve that problem in a recurring way. Um, and I think recurring is an important point because that's really the kinds of challenges that I wanted to tackle with this program. So as opposed to, you can imagine, one sort of behavior changes, things like adoption, right? Buying a new house or car or opening up a bank account, whatever it might be. Uh, you know, that's an interesting kind of behavioral challenge. And I, you know, there's, there's good, important work to be done there in terms of decision-making and, and frameworks and, and how to approach those those behaviors. But for me, the ones that I think are, are really difficult, the hard challenges in our lives, are the ones where we need to get into this kind of recurring process of, um, of solving that problem, whether it be on a, on a daily basis or a weekly or a monthly basis, and thinking about systems as a way to just get us into that, you know, into that rhythm or into that cadence. And Systems, I think, are important because it, it shifts our mind to think about not just the activity itself, but also the environment and the features in the environment that we can integrate or, or balance with in order to solve the problem. I think often when we think about these sorts of challenges, we'll jump to solutions that regard things like willpower or motivation, you know, inspiration. And think about that as a way to solve these issues. And obviously, you know, you know just as well as me that those kinds of those kinds of mechanisms play a role. But but the fact is that willpower and motivation moves more like in a wave than uh, you know in a consistent manner. And so you don't want to have to rely just on those aspects of yourself in order to solve these problems. And so by thinking about systems as a solution you really just think about solving a problem in a consistent manner, you know, in a way that uh, just reduces the amount of variability that you're going and, and also just lowers the likelihood that you're going to, uh, that you're going to fail. So yeah, that's what I mean around systems. I don't know if you have any follow-up questions around that. Well, I guess what can help is just us diving in a little bit to mm. how a system is built in some ways. Uh, yeah. So also as actually to answer a question that came in the chat, uh, which was what I used the program for. And I'll be honest to say, what I think is great with the program is that I didn't start per se with a thing that, like, okay, this is what I need to solve for. Uh, but I think what's good with the program is kind of you're more, it feels more like you're developing, again, a set of way of thinking and a tool set rather than the solution for a specific problem, so to say. Mm. And so what I would say, though, is that I ended up focusing on exercise as my as my behavior to to really work on and uh, 
it was during this weird time because I'm in Sweden and we have had an interesting set of for the COVID regulations. And so this was when they opened up gyms again. And so I hadn't been at the gym for a couple of months by that point. You just probably work out outside or at home. And then I was going to try to start going to the gym again three or four times a week. And so this was in June, I think, or, or May. And the good news is that I've definitely made that work. So uh, I think I've missed one gym session since June. And I'll partly, obviously, uh, credit greatly the program for this. So this program really helped to set up me for success. But obviously, I cheat a little bit because I know some of these things from before. But uh, I, I really think the program was great as well. So jumping a little bit more back into the program. So I guess going back to goal setting, how do you, how do you see goal setting playing a part in, in building your system? Yeah, so goal setting is incredibly underrated and, and I also think misunderstood. Uh, so it, I think it's important, first of all, to, to just understand that goals are good and bad relative to the, the context in which you're using them in. Right? So if you're, thinking about, if you're thinking about goals in the short run, what you want to think about is being very specific, you know, getting concrete very narrowly, defining you know, the specific behavior that you're trying to change and really focusing on a behavior as opposed to an event or an outcome. Right? So thinking about what is the activity that you are trying to perform as opposed to the, the result and outcome that you're trying to achieve. That's important. That can give you feedback as, as to whether you're on the right path. But in terms of setting up the goal, it's important to focus on that behavior and, and really narrow it down to a concrete, specific action uh, you know, within a particular context. When you're thinking about the long run, I think it's actually better to, to just throw that sort of framework out completely and think about ambiguous, fuzzier, broader goals, right? Because as we've learned from COVID, the, the future is inherently unpredictable. And, you know, as we know from research around uh, future selves and being able to empathize with our future selves, people, I'm thinking of people like Dan Gilbert and others that have showed things like the end of history illusion. We really, over the longer run, aren't very good at predicting what our values, our preferences, what will make us happy is. And as a result of that, it's important that we don't try and uh, sort of forecast uh, too narrowly what it is you know, we want to achieve over the course of a decade. And so I think when we're thinking about longer run goals, we want to think about broader, fuzzier funnels uh, that still push you in a particular direction, but don't you know, focus narrowly on a particular object. Whereas in the short run, focusing narrowly and very concretely on a specific action or behavior that you're trying to achieve. Right. And so what could be maybe, to illustrate this better, what could be an example of this? Let's say I can put myself in the scenario here of being the one who's, let's say, let's say I wanted to improve my diet in some way. How, how would you help me think about maybe setting that somewhat funnel of sort and maybe my the smaller goals as well? Yeah, so on the longer run, you want to think about what's driving that. So, so getting down to the core motivator there, uh, which is probably largely around health. There might be a few different dimensions of variables that are important there. So just acknowledging what those factors are that are driving that motivation is important and thinking about which of those are likely to 
occur or, or remain in place over the long run. You know, I'd like to use the example from, uh, from, from Jeff Bezos. We can ignore his kind of his business ethics, but you know, he's, a, he's a good thinker. And uh, you know, he's, he's well known for, for asking the question around not what's different, but what's going to remain the same, right? So what's going to remain the same over the long run is very important. So considering those aspects of yourself around health, around longevity, around your flexibility, around optionality, those sorts of things uh, would be the things to consider on the longer run side. And then moving from that down to a very specific activity that you want to put in place on a daily basis. And so from a health or a diet perspective, you might think about, I think there are probably three variables that you could think along. The one would be the amount of food. The second would be the type of food. The third would be when you go about eating. So looking at something like fasting versus a typical three meal a day approach. And so what you then start getting into is the activities itself. What are you eating? When are you eating? And how much are you eating? And from that, you can then get to a very specific activity that you're performing in a recurring manner. And you want to set up your behavior-based goal statements to really demonstrate you know, what that activity will look like. And the, the way I like to tell people to think about this is almost to get, you want to be as concrete or specific as if you were sort of orchestrating a choreographed dance, right? So, or, you know, another metaphor here is imagine you're a director of a film and you're trying to describe to an actor exactly what you want them to perform, right? So to the act of opening up the fridge and uh, taking out, you know, the particular ingredients, you want to get to that kind of micro scale, Right? Because what's that going to do? It's going to kind of burn in that visualization to your mind and it starts actually shaping the way that you think about the activity. So when you're in the moments in a rush in the morning you know, to make that smoothie on the way to work, you just have this kind of this, this habit stack of activities, this choreographed dance that you can just quickly move through in order to perform that activity. So it starts becoming a bit of an intervention in itself. That's great. And I love that frame of thinking about it as being the, the screenwriter or director of, of your own movie of sort, because I guess that's obviously how we see ourselves. We see ourselves as a star of our own movie. And what's interesting, I guess, is that we have those different roles within that as well. Mm. And I guess while we always want to put ourselves in the role where we follow a plot line, let's say, like some superhero of a sort where, where you're succeeding, everything is going great. We more often than not also tend to write a script that maybe leads us to a different type of story, mm. <laughs> more of a struggle and a frustrated type of uh, story. And so it's very actually, I think, a powerful way of looking at it. In terms of like you have the control in some ways to list with the things that you can control to, to script that in, in a way where you know what to do and you have... Obviously, other parts of the program is looking at how you can make the forces outside of you and within you and so on to, to follow that path. So I love that metaphor. Yeah, and it actually ties into another aspect of, of the program, which is around creating the scripts for particular failure scenarios, right? So not just creating the ideal scenario for this actor, but imagining that that actor might fail. And what are the scenarios or states in which that actor fails? 
And, uh, you know, this is typically in the, back, in the behavioral science world called a pre-mortem. Um, so what you're doing here is you're just helping to understand uh, what the problems are. But then as a result of that, because, you know, you're doing this work pre the failure actually occurring, you can start to think about what are the ways that I might lower the probability of that failure state actually happening. And then also starting to think about if it does happen, what's the best response I could do as a result of that? So thinking about both preventative strategies, but then also these kind of if-then strategies. So if this failure state does occur, then I will do X or Y. Just gives you some tools to work with, uh, both in terms of uh, lowering probabilities, but also an immediate activity that you know is going to be helpful you know, in this, in this situation that you do forget to make that smoothie in the morning or run out of time or don't feel motivated or, or just get distracted. Right. So almost in a way, both optimize for success, but also plan for risk of failure. Exactly. Yeah. And use those failure states to continuously sort of iterate and, and optimize for success. Right. So, and I think that's another part that's really valuable that, that's sort of missed with the third party model is that because you are both the experimenter and the subject, you know, the researcher and the participant, you can learn from these experiences, update your systems, and as a result of that iteration, slowly get better and l- continuously lower the probability that you're going to get into you know, failure scenarios in the future. So it's kind of one of the participants put it nicely. He took the idea from... Um, from Nassim Taleb, which I think is called anti-fragility, right? Where failing actually strengthens the system. And I think this is a nice example of that, where if you have a learning mechanism in place, what you do is you move through that process, you learn from that failure, and if you integrate the learnings from that into that system, you just lower the chances that you'll encounter that failure state in the future. And as a result, build up a more consistent behavior that uh, hopefully helps you achieve those goals. Yeah, that's great. And I love that idea of bringing in the anti-fragile part because, again, just to further clarify what that means, I guess, is that if you have a box with something that's fragile, if you shake that box, you'll break it and it will become worse and worse the more you shake. But uh, when something like you described is something that's anti-fragile, it's a little bit like our muscles in some ways in our bodies where if it's put under a certain amount of stress, they actually become stronger and become better. And I guess it's still a little bit of a variance there in terms of if you put it too much stress, like you can still ruin it. But with a lot of the systems that we actually have in place, they sometimes lack that and fragility aspects because we don't, like you said, we don't really have the pre-mortem. Yeah, and I think that's why having some sort of feedback mechanism is really important. So practically what this could look like is just just taking the time to, to review your performance on a particular activity at the end of a week or you know, every two weeks where you step back, you, you look at the activity that you were uh, trying to put in place, you identify you know, where you fell over, you know, the failure states that you, uh, you were trapped in, and as a result, you redesign your system going into the, the following week. And so, again, that's another benefit of this sort of recurring system-like structure is that um, if you if you can review it and, and iterate on it, then it should slowly be getting better and better over time. And I think that's yeah, that's 
that's also important because it does, I think it does get harder before it gets easier, right? And this is something that's been interesting to observe a sort of pattern in the program is that while participants are running their experiments, sort of around the third, fourth week mark, there's this, I think one of the participants called it the valley of despair, where the motivation or the fuel, or the novelty associated with the activity is kind of worn off a bit and it hasn't really kicked into a habit yet. And so there's this kind of mode where it's, it's quite difficult to, to really go through the course of a week or so without failing once or twice. And so it becomes really important that, you know, you have good systems in place at that point, uh, because that's really whether, you know, sort of make or break, whether it's going to uh, move through and become something more permanent or, you know, slip just into another sort of New Year's resolution style activity that you wanted to do, but uh, just dropped off and um, didn't get around to it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think that's that's a great way of, uh, of putting it. And I think um, actually now, before I go into rabbit hole and asking you some follow-up question on that, actually, we're going to move towards a segment, uh, which will be the last segment before we open up for Q&As. And so here, this segment is pretty fun in many ways, and I would like to involve everyone listening in this as well. So it's called Overrated versus Underrated. And what this pretty much means is that it will be a quick fire round of questions where I will list a couple of things and ask if you think those things are overrated, underrated, or correctly rated by society or let's say the field. Um, and I encourage controversy here. So if you have too many correctly rated answers, I might give you a nudge to be more contrarian. <laughs> and so I obviously have some of these prepared, but if anyone listening have any ideas for some topic that they want to put forward to you and, and see if you think it's underrated or overrated, feel free to put it in the chat right now. But I'll start. I'll start. So I will first begin with mindset, growth mindset, uh, more specifically. So mindset as component for behavior change, overrated or underrated? Mm, that's the tricky one. I mean, it's it's overrated in the research, but... It, I think it's got so much potential. We just need to figure out uh, it's it's proper mechanisms, you know, of, of how it works. But in terms of the current research, I think it's a bit overrated. I will switch a little bit here to some serious and less serious. So this will be perhaps a little bit less serious uh, question, but I'm curious to hear. So DiCaprio played a very famous performance in the movie Blood Diamond uh, using a South African accent. So. Did he get it right? Was his performance overrated or underrated? Overrated. <laughs> uh, it was. It was terrible. It's a it's all right effort, I suppose. But yeah, it, uh, from a South African perspective, it's yeah overrated. Fair enough. Reading books for the purpose of becoming a better behavioral scientist. Books are really valuable in many ways, but can also be quite difficult to translate into action. So. As a way to become a better behavioral scientist, do you think it's underrated or overrated? I'd say overrated, and I'd I'd say that because a lot of the you know a lot of the great thinking and it, as a gateway drug into the field, as a portal, I think it's it's important. It plays that role, but we become way too reliant on it, and I think there's a lot of value to that just comes out of practicing, you know, just taking an idea like an accountability partnership or a commitment device or, you know, even just 
a prompt or a reminder and actually going through the experience, putting that you know, in play in your own life and understanding what it actually feels like to have that, in, that intervention influence you. I don't think enough, enough work or thinking or attention is being put on that mode of learning. Um, so, so in that regard, I think relatively it's, it's overrated. Great. So we'll move into a territory that I happen to know that you know a lot about. So it's the DJ scene. And so for people who don't know, I, I know that you're uh, somewhat of a successful DJ at some point. You can speak a little more to that maybe. But what I wanted to ask you is the Swedish DJ scene has a, quite a big reputation. We have Avicii, we have Mafia, Alesso, so on. How would you rate the Swedish DJ scene? Overrated or underrated? I'd say it's underrated. Wow. And I'd say that just because, I mean... You're trying to be nice to me, obviously. <laughs> no, I'd, I'd say it because, yeah, there have been some, some great DJs that have emerged out of there, but I think it still gets overshadowed by you know, the house scenes in Ibiza or, or London or, you know, even you know, a lot of music and the labels coming out of the US. So I think there's... There's still a lot of potential. We just see these, I imagine it like a, the t- we see the tip of the iceberg, but there's a lot of interesting and exciting music that's, that's sitting just below the surface that, um, that the world needs exposure to. Okay. Well, if, if that's true, I think one hypothesis that's been thrown around in Sweden for that is the idea that we talked about in the beginning of this conversation, which is that it's getting really dark and cold in Sweden. And so for at least five months of the year, you have to be indoors and, and pretty much do something. And I would say that could be a reason why a lot of people ended up being good DJs, because it's kind of a fun thing to do if you're forced to be inside, right? It's a good hypothesis, yeah. It makes a lot of sense, especially if it's electronic music, I agree. Uh, cool. One shout out I would make there is Rebecca and Fiona, I think is quite underrated. Yeah. Okay. So... Um, Going to more behavioral science again, personality tests as a tool for building self-awareness. Underrated or overrated? Maybe that's a broad category as well. Obviously, you have both the likes of the Meyer Briggs, and then you also have <laughs> the different ones. So, so maybe maybe we can we can stick to the big five here as as uh, mm, yeah. Ocean. Okay. Yeah. So I think it is it's underrated. But at the same time, I don't think we have... So it's, it's underrated, but I don't think the big five quite gets it right in terms of its applications. And also, I think that it doesn't necessarily take into consideration just the, just the contextual dependency of self, right? So that David in one context might be a social context or a sort of personal private environment, whatever it might be. And is slightly different to to versions of myself in in other environments, and so I think that's the one thing where my the one area where these kinds of tests might be overrated is that they just don't have that sort of accommodation for um, for con- for contextual factors, social and physical or digital factors. But on the other side, I think it it's often ignored completely in a behavioral science context. And it could be a useful uh, integration or intersection, especially if we start thinking more about uh, the tailoring side, right? So thinking about personalization and uh, persuasion profiles and that sort of thing. 
in that domain, I think it's a it's a tool that's well worth exploring more deeply. Mm. Great. And so I'm on my last question, and then I have a couple of ones coming up on the chat. So I will actually, after this question, leave it and open up the Q&A. So my last question is uh, Nando's, overrated or underrated? Definitely underrated. Wow. Until it has global global domination. Now, I say that because I'm, I'm biased as a South African <laughs> brand. But, uh, you know, my, my friends who are working in sustainability and biodiversity are probably going to have my neck for it too. So I probably <laughs> I need to be careful there. Uh, but, yeah, it, uh, as... As a South African, I, I'm obligated to say that it's underrated. <laughs> Fair enough. I would also say that there's actually two somewhat chains or restaurants that I highly regard when I travel, and that's Chipotle and Nando's. So whenever I'm in an airport or something, when either of those two are there, I always make sure to, to grab one. Um, so I think it's a good export. And they make the best adverts too. They got, they got the funniest adverts. They're really... I mean, a lot of it is just um, sort of gets at a very South African. If you want to understand South African humor and just, yeah, the, just the, the sort of sweet spots between the, the real cultural diversity and mix that we have here, Nando's just really hits the nail on the head more often than not. So I think from that perspective too, and how they've crafted their brand as a result of that, yeah, they just, you can imagine in a country with, you know, 11 different languages and such a diverse range of cultural backgrounds. It's difficult to to get humor right, and they managed to just do it so well. So, yeah, big ups to them on that. They don't just make good food. They they have good adverts and a brand too. That's great. I'm, I'm going to try to make sure to add some, some of those in maybe the show notes so people can look at them as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to wrap things up, uh, we're getting now to what I call the peak end rule. And so the pick and roll here is that pretty much standing up for the final question here and ending on some form of a good note here, I think. And what I'm really curious about here, David, is asking you about your own self-experimentations. So obviously we know that all self-experimentation doesn't always end well. In movies, you seem to often turn green because of it. At least that's the case with the Hulk or the Green Goblin, right? So how have you, know, you approached self-experimentation yourself and maybe what has been a successful versus a failed experiment that you've experienced? There, there are different degrees. Maybe I can just map out self-experimentation quickly. So when I, when I say self-experimentation, it's really this idea of taking a particular activity or an intervention and putting that in play in your own life and having some sort of measure or tracking system set up in place so that you can collect data and make an informed decision at the end of, let's say, a couple of weeks or a month as to whether that's something that's been serving you, working for you, you know, or, or working against you. And so the idea here is just that as opposed to relying purely on intuition and things like... You know, like the peak end rule or just the fallibility of our memories or, um, or affective forecasting or the myriad of biases that might get in the way of us making an informed decision about whether something's working. It's just sort of capturing more granular data and then using that uh, in a reflective, more deliberate, systematic manner 
to figure out whether you should integrate something more and take it more seriously in your life. And so an example of that where, you know, where it's worked is uh, there's, there's so many, but um, I think something that I've done recently is I've been thinking a lot about how I can combine different dimensions of, you know, sort of different areas of my life or my health um, and find activities that really sit at the, the intersection of those of those areas. And so the one that I've been thinking a lot about is around kind of physical health, mental health, and, and my sort of relational or social health. And so the one activity that I've tried to set up on a weekly basis is there's a, you know, if you know the sort of geographic uh, sort of location of Cape Town, we sit along a mountain. And so there's this beautiful forest that sort of wraps around the sort of bottom parts of the mountain. And so every Thursday morning, I've just kind of set up a system to, uh, to go and spend time with a group of friends on a hike before work. You sort of, we leave at about half past five, quarter past five, which is, I'm sure, pitch dark for you at the moment. Uh, but it's, it's sunrise for us. And so we, we sort of move through that forest along the sort of contour lines and then do a short meditation in, um, in one of the, the gardens and then, and then head on home. And so what's nice about this is it kind of gets at a bit of movement, but it also gets out into nature. And we know the sort of biophilic benefits of being in a natural setting and how that, you know, that's valuable for sort of our mental health. And then it's also with friends and sort of reconnecting with other people in ways, you know, that, that are different to over, over the phone or sitting in a meeting environment or, or around a dinner table. So, so that's something I've put in place and something that I've, I've, that was my hypothesis and, you know, it's something that I've seen to be working. I've, I've tracked my, my sort of mood or energy levels and uh, along those different dimensions on a daily basis and, and seen a bit of a change since I've started doing that. And so it's something that I'll integrate now more permanently into the, the way that I do my life. Something that's, that's failed. So... So the one was I've been experimenting a bit with uh, with different kinds of intermittent fasting. So um, it's just just really around where the feeding window sits. And so I set up an experiment early on where I basically created a feeding window between 8 a.m. So when I woke up and lunch, and then after that, you know, I didn't eat until the next day. And that worked well. It's worked well during lockdown, but as things have started to open up. Now, you know, especially in South Africa, we're going into summer here and there are more sort of dinner events at people's houses and that sort of thing. It becomes much more difficult to perform that kind of activity. So there was this unanticipated transition that, uh, you know, in one period of time made a lot of sense, but now doesn't. And all of a sudden, you know, that that system or that, that routine or practice um, isn't effective anymore. And so I've had to adjust or update it. So I think understanding the, you know, not just the fact that you can build a habit around these things, but also what are the contextual, the sort of broader changes in time, seasonality changes or, or sort of broader forces that you can't really influence and, and how is that affecting the way that, you know, these practices unfold is, is an important lesson and, um, and something, you know, I've had, to, I've had to change as a result. Uh, so, so yeah, those are just a few examples. And yeah, I think that the key thing there is just around setting a very specific behavior, but thinking about 
what are you doing it for? What, you know, what are the long-term goals and the short-term goals? Like, what are you trying to achieve as a result of putting this practice in place? How would you go about measuring that in an ideal sense? Then what, from that ideal sense, practically speaking, what could you put in place either as proxies or as you know, manually collecting data in order to sort of get at that, that outcome measure? And um, how much time do you need before you can make an informed decision about whether it's working for you or not? And uh, I think it's a really important thing to do because making these sorts of decisions, um, you know, I like to sort of compare it to startups, right? So if you think about a tech startup, they often talk about these ideas of leverage and scale, right? So you'll talk about the fact that you, know, you want to build a company that's got, you know, hundreds of thousands of customers and so you set up this tech in order to sort of small changes uh, get leveraged by the fact that you have this massive customer base so you know in terms of scale and i think you can think about yourself in the same way if you think about time right so small changes in particular activities that you do on a frequent or recurring basis have these massive consequences when you think about yourself as just showing up on a daily or weekly basis and so thinking um, about putting effort into one sort of changes to shaping of your environment or changes to the way that you your routine or patterning, especially when they're happening on a daily basis, become fundamentally important because they have these dramatic changes if you think about them over the course of a year or five years or 10 years. And so scaling over time, I think, is a good metaphor for thinking about um, you know, the importance of putting experiments in place and, and really figuring out what works for you in what context and, uh, and how, can you, um, you know, how can you make decisions about whether to integrate something or to drop it and try something else. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really great to hear you speak, but it's very clear that you, you live like you preach, uh, which is always important as well. And so, yeah, there's so much we didn't get a chance to cover today in terms of circles in time from behavioral scaffolding to situation mapping and, and much, much more. So I really recommend people to check it out who are interested and explore more about uh, your work. I'm going to obviously share that in the show notes and um, I recommend really exploring that more. So beyond that, as the last thing to wrap up, I guess I, I want to say thanks for making the time of speaking with us today. And it's always beautiful when you know, it's possible to have these conversations across even different continents, but especially when it's with someone who has so clearly dedicated his life to this craft as you have. So you clearly live and breathe uh, behavioral science, and I'm really happy uh, that you also decided to kind of provide people with other other people the opportunity to learn more about what we do. And even beyond that, actually apply it to their own lives. So both with Service in Time, but also with your podcast podcast, uh, sample of one. So, you know, if I can represent for a moment the field, uh, I just want to say thanks for your wonderful contributions. Thank you. Thanks, Sam. And uh, yeah, it was an absolute pleasure to be on here. Thanks for your great questions. And um, yeah, looking forward to working closely with you in the future. I think it's, it's yeah, the start of a beautiful collaboration. And I'm, yeah, just in awe of all the work that you're doing too. So on your, from my side and as a representative of the field, I'm, I'm, yeah, I mirror what you say. I think, uh, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. You're doing some great stuff.
And uh, thanks everyone for joining uh, and thanks for the great questions. All right, that wraps up another episode. How can you not enjoy listening to David? In a behavioral science world full of noise, he's a welcome, thoughtful presence. Again, I really recommend you checking out Circus in Time. I know the next cohort will begin actually in a few days. So make sure you check it out. And David also has a wonderful podcast that he runs himself called Sample of One that I always enjoy listening to. And as you might have noticed, the Q&A section of this recording is not published. Um, so for a chance to join in the next Industry Call Leader uh, session and ask questions directly to the guests, make sure you join Habit Weekly Pro. This will get you access to live calls with industry leaders like this one, plus much more, including interactive case studies, private online community, and the not boring book club. And I think that's it, another episode in the bag. And obviously this is very new for me and I'm very open for that reason to hearing all of the feedback you might have on how this podcast experience can be improved. Just send me an email or message me on LinkedIn or wherever you want to contact me. We're really very much just getting started here. So any type of feedback is very much well received. And I'm really looking forward to together kind of evolving this podcast to something that can become pretty great, I think, in the long run. So again, hope you enjoyed this one. And I look forward to sharing many more with you in the near future. In the meantime, I, as always, wish you a great day and all the best. Mm-hmm.